Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Cooper Cole podcast, where we delve into the practices of Canadian and international artists in conjunction with their exhibitions at our gallery. The podcast emerged from our YouTube channel, which we developed in 2020. My name is Magdalene Asimakis, and I'm the Director of Research and Artist Relations at Cooper Cole, a contemporary art gallery in Toronto, Canada, that was founded in 2012. This episode features a conversation between the Canadian Houston-based artist Jagdeep Reyna, the Brooklyn-based artist Hasabi Kinadu, the Guelph-based poet and environmental scientist Mother Anand, and myself as moderator. The podcast was adapted from a live program curated by Jagdeep that took place in conjunction with his exhibition, Beautiful Zameen, that is currently on view at Cooper Cole's East and West Galleries. Beautiful Zameen, translating to Beautiful Land, includes a series of new works in textile, video, and drawing. All of the works are related to the Green Revolution in Punjab, a U.S.-sponsored agricultural framework based on high-yield seed varieties, intensive irrigation and drainage, and chemical fertilizers and pesticides. This framework was implemented in the 1960s and has since damaged the landscape in Punjab by causing declining water tables, widespread soil erosion, low forest cover, and an epidemic of farmer suicides. Jagdeep's works depict farmers, agricultural land, and hands that hold crops and photographs, fusing his research with an ancestral material practice. The material history of South Asia is a central tenet of Jagdeep's practice. Many of his works possess a geometric border called a fukari, which is a traditional form of weaving on muslin cloth using hand-dyed and organic materials. The inclusion of this technique in Jagdeep's work is significant as it was invented in Punjabi villages. And following the fall of the empire, the relinquishing of control over India by the British, and the violent upheaval of the partition, there was a mass disappearance and heavy destruction of many Fulkari pieces in Punjab. In the East Gallery of Cooper Cole, the textile works with Fulkari borders are displayed in the main space in loose thematic groupings, agricultural land, Punjabi birds, the loss of life and contemplation. In the basement, Jagdeep's experimental stop animation film Charka is projected onto an embroidery of the same name. The video tells the story of a young woman who grieves for her grandmother by remembering an old spinning wheel that she left for her. One day the woman's estranged sister comes back to the village to see her and they have an argument. This is a commentary on colonialism's damaging impact on all that it touches, including familial relationships. In the West Gallery, a series of blue monochrome drawings made with pencil crayon and indigo dyes sewn into quilts continue the story of the farmers of Punjab, specifically around water and the rivers there. These six identically sized and colored works have a photographic or filmic nature to them when installed together, offering vistas into the lives of women living in rural areas of Punjab. For this program, Jagdeep, Hasabi, and Mother each presented their own work, which included poetry, videos, and readings that are in dialogue with beautiful Zameen. We spoke over Zoom on the evening of Diwali, not by design, with an audience during the last week of the exhibition. So here it is. I hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us for this uh, public program in conjunction with Jagdeep Reyna's uh, solo exhibition, Beautiful Zameen which is currently open at Cooper Cole in Toronto. Um, this is the last week of the exhibition. So if you're in town, uh, please be sure to stop by. Um, if you're not in town, uh, let us know if we can help you access it digitally, um, if that is of interest. Um, I'd like to welcome Jagdeep Reyna, who's here, as well as Mother Anand and Hasabi Kedano, who will be sharing some of their work. 
um, as well as responses to Jagdeep's exhibition and work. Um, my name is Magdalene. I'm the director of research at Cooper Cole, um, and I'll be moderating the program. So um, before we get into it, I would like to pass it off to Jagdeep. To, I thought maybe he could speak about um, Jagdeep, if you could speak about what inspired you to curate this program and why you've, you know, brought these people here together today. Yeah, um, thank you so much, uh, Magdalene, for the introduction and to everybody for coming in and, uh, and joining for this program. Um, the first thing I just wanted to mention that, you know, I'm very grateful to be speaking from the site of the Indigenous peoples, specifically the Atacapa Ishak, the Tapilam Kwahulitiken, the Sanaban of the Tanakwa tribe, and the Karanakawa nations. Uh, and I'm really grateful to be living and working and speaking from um, these lands today. And speaking of lands, um, what it means to be on a contested land, I think in many ways that's kind of at the root and at the core of what this exhibition is about, um, beautiful Zamin. And as Magdalene mentioned, Zamin translates to land. And I was thinking a lot about um, the idea of what it means to put together an exhibition and how to take uh, how to take kind of the concept of um, a solo presentation and, and subvert it to allow it to be opened up into a space where um, other people can gather, fellow artists, writers, people working in other interdisciplinary fields. And I feel like from the beginning of when I was putting together this program, the two people that kept coming to my head were Hasabi Kidano and Mother Anand. Um, Hasabi and I met five years ago at a residency in Maine, um, and we've always stayed in touch throughout the years. Her work for me has always made me think a lot about this idea of land, specifically landscapes, landscapes that feel fictional, landscapes that are rooted in um, um, a space that um, are not, not, not fictional and thinking a lot about the land through this lens of history and how history is something that isn't fixed, but something that one can revisit over and over again. And I remember having conversations with her around like texts and different writers and artists and like Tassada Dean and uh, Svetlana Boyne and um, um, Toba Kaduri and the way that she approached her work thinking about um, history and the landscape through her beautiful animations and her printmaking and her drawing like her work was like always in my head so I was like I have to I'm like I am inviting her to do something one day <laughs> and then um, similarly with mother and mother and I met four years ago. Um, I'd known about Mother's work um, because I'd gone to a poetry reading um, four years ago that that was at the Art Gallery of Guelph, which is an art museum in my hometown. And she had presented a series of poems and one of them was about Indian birds. And I remember it really stayed with me. And then I organized a public program at that same museum a few months later and she came to that. And then I remember she came to that and I kind of hunted her down. I sent her an email and we started this really beautiful conversation kind of spanning many different things, environmental histories, textiles, um, thinking about the global south, thinking about birds, thinking about trees, plants, water, uh, thinking about friendships, kinship, um, thinking about this idea of the, the artist and the mentor, because in many ways she's also been a mentor and a teacher to me. Um, so it, it was really fitting for me to kind of reach out to Mother as well and kind of in, and let her know like, you know, I really wanna have you speak uh, and, and invite you to share your, po oh, your poetry with me. So it kind of grew from there and, um, I'm just really grateful to the both of them for making the time. It's it's a Monday evening. It's Diwali. There's like six million things happening. So I'm really grateful that the both of them made the time to to hang out and just be a part of this program. And of course, Magdalene for kind of um, being so central and important to uh, helping steer this program together and moderating it. I'm really grateful to you and also Cooper Cole for being for being such an amazing program to be a part of and allowing me to to think about 
ways in which this exhibition can kind of coexist beyond just the gallery space. So I'm, I'm really, really grateful. Thanks so much, Jagdeep. Um, yeah, I think I think it's a great opportunity for sure to to speak of, you know, these your work is so layered, right? There's so many stories and dialogues and, you know, sort of technical aspects to it that layer together that really emerge from, you know, uh, your experience with all these different people and, and different disciplines. So it's nice to bring it to light in this way, for sure. Yeah. Um, so the format of this program is going to be that uh, each participant will have 10 or 15 minutes to do a presentation um, that's going to be a mix of, of different practices. Um, and so I'll start, we're, we're going to start with Jagdeep Reina. And so I'll read your, um, your brief bio just going in just for people to, you know, orient. Um, so Jagdeep is currently a fellow at the core program at the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston. Uh, before that, he was a Paul Mellon fellow at Yale University, a recipient of the 2020 Sobe Art Award and a resident at the Skowhegan School of Painting and Sculpture. He received his BFA from Western University in 2013 and his MFA from the Rhode Island School of, De of Design in 2016. He's exhibited internationally at the Blaffer Art Museum in Houston, Javeri Contemporary in Mumbai, uh, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Toronto, the Textile Museum of Canada, Soft Opening in London, the Art Gallery of Guelph, uh, the Art Gallery of Alberta, uh, the Rubin Art Museum in New York, the RISD Art uh, Museum of Art, and the Camden Art Center in London. And uh, Jagdeep is joining us today from Houston, where he's uh, currently located, as he mentioned. So um, I'll I'll turn it over to you now. Thank you so much, Magdalene. Um, so for my kind of presentation, um, I'm going to be sharing some poems that I've been writing in response to some of the work in the exhibition. Um, and um, Another reason why I wanted to also bring Mother into the um, the program is, in addition to being an amazing writer and teacher, Mother has also been kind of a poet mentor to me and like doing workshops with her and reading a lot of different poetry and um, and similar to Haas's text too, like the way that she approached her writing um, and through the through the medium of a letter, um, I felt really inspired by both both Haas and Mother and their relationship to language and thinking about using my own kind of relationship to language and, and using and presenting that for tonight's program. So they're still kind of newish poems. I haven't really shared them, I'm a bit nervous. So I'm really looking forward to um, sharing these writings with you guys. And they're gonna be in response to um, some of these uh, pieces in the exhibition. Um, so this first poem is entitled River Lovers. I cannot stop flirting in this river, our river, wet and wise. But behind it, the Zamindar stares at us. He's dripping with bits of spit and drool that's tripping from his greasy mouth. He frowns with distrust. His eyebrows raw, rise, then they fall, then they rise, then fall again. It's time to say goodbye, to leave the river. I'm pissed. Go away, I slyly whisper to the Zamindar. My lover starts to laugh. We giggle with our fingers, clasped over our mouths. Her long braided plate swings and hits my ass. And we smirk, step out of the wet Janab River. She wipes away my sweat. Then we walk back, solemnly and quietly. She goes left, I go right, towards the lane of sugarcane. 
ignoring cat calls from men smoking on manjas, playing their drums. They didn't see that I had soiled in their pot, where I kept the dough to cook this rot of food for them. I'll smirk, these are the bits of my power, and I'll spit in their food, poor babies. Meanwhile, my lover croons away in her own village. She's far yet close to me. We're free. Say hello when you see me. The sisters had a love that was as ancient as the river Ravi. They learned to slip their fingers one by one into each other, kinship softly sewn together like a spider embroidering her silver web. Hanging thread by thread, they left their home to wander to the edge of the fields. What a sight, they whispered as the birds greeted them. Dear sisters, say hello when you see us. The birds smiled. The birds smiled. And the sisters nodded. Then the birds kissed them, gently brushing their lips with sugarcane, gently using their beaks to coil their hair with bamboo, dropping nuts and fruits in their palms, lifting them up by their braids into the skies where they went back home. Say hello, say hello. The only sound left. I still dream of your battered charka and long for your wheel to spin seeds that I will plant in your black braids where rice fields will grow and hold hands with the crops. These two lovers gently climbing out of your thick hair. Their fulkaris stitched with gold silk that unravels and flows from the sugar cane. Those old roads. Those old roads, the old man yelled, spitting charcoal and mudstones where he worked. He cries and looks me in the eye. They'll eat you up. They'll kill you. Then he falls. With my trembling hands, I stroke his face on these old roads. The Moloch yells, he gave me hell. His fingers point to the old man who now lies dead, his hands stroking my hips, my joints. Turning immortal. Every day with her brown blistered hands, bleached with Punjabi flower, coarse like raw silk, like dust, her back bent like a black crow, like a witch, wide-eyed, thick with dark surma, sees her sisters leave one by one, married off to men with tempers, bloated juts of the wild land, their clammy hands stretched for gold. Her baba weeps, a cloud of pasty grief, of smoke. She will rise, born in wetlands, Rajasthani deserts, woman of the bend, spirits unleashing her stolen life. Cheap girl, waste of time. She needs and needs, mixing bread from her gilded, lush clay pot. Bread as a good housewife, modest, marked, sheepish, a perfect bride. She rebels, often screams, dancing on her clay pot, loose-lipped, unkempt. Her baba tells her when the night falls, they will leave, disappear, live together in one small wooden boat, burning the dowry. She with her clay pot, her toothless baba, kind-eyed and quick, quick, with wooden sticks, carved from ragosa trees, long, slender, thick. Good grief. Look at them, turning immortal. Spirit in the village fields. Remember that long, lost spirit, hiding behind the trees, quietly picking plums, her gentle fingers sticky with lasuda leaves. India green that rests on her skin. Deep in the clay pot, the leaves fall, glossy now. Look at the wounds. Look at the smooth way she flattens the leaves, moving them up and down the skin of her ch children as their wounds leave. Who was she, this spirit, watching us with thick, bated breath? Like xylem she ga gave us, water that flowed from the roots, the stems, transporting the nutrients, 
She waves at us with her wooden skin. Xylem G, the children cry, come back, please don't leave us. Xylem G, they called her, her bangles from Ladakh, her name from Greece, Xylo that meant wood in ancient Greek. Who knows where she came from, but she slips away from the children and floats towards the plum trees, her hands full of those Lasuda leaves that still linger and heal. Those children grew up and soon fell apart, their dreams bootlegged and sold for the steep price of loneliness. Lasuda leaves, once upon a time when she used to love them, find them, Xylem. Archive Lover Bird. Punjabi birds in carbon print, Indian roller, Baj Kabudar, soft pink bulbul, dark purple wings, Kali Titar facing left, beak poised to sing. I tried looking in the weak sunlight of Lahore, my fingers bleached with hand sanitizer on Grand Trunk Road, Adonatically Bazaar, in the holy skies of Kartarpur. I want those birds to carry me past invisible border lines, like the ghosts of partition, who still insist on taking selfies with us. Mom's sister's husband said that in Ladakh, if one sees a crow on the roof of a house, it is supposed to forebode evil. It is not enough to hear it. A faded copy of Birds of Kashmir in PDF, just like the laughing thrush, the copy warily smiles. Look at those snow whistles, those garden birds moving through cool winters from the Punjab to the Himalayas to Kashmir. I'll press my palm to the sheet of paper, coat my fingers with gelatin, and kiss my fingers to the ancient text, watching the birds and the corpses follow each other from bush to bush, from tree to tree. The Thickles Trust has a brown iris with green yellowish eye rim. They are seen in the Gothi willow orchards in the spring, sometimes making birds entirely of thread, found in the veranda of a garden where the Shalwalas once embroidered their Pashmina Bhutte. Indian tailor birds use their beaks as sewing needles. Instead, I crush cardamom pods and roses, coiling and smoothing out muslin. I need to unspool and unwind the silk thread. I need to create wings and embroidery. And the last poem, which is in the exhibition and which is embroidered on as a border is entitled The Great Divide. She takes her camera and crawls into the tractor where she's wedged between nine clay jugs and the seven women who smile, come with us to collect the water. And so she rides with them through mustard colored fields while the sun shines down on them casting shadows like seven scorching bindis, covering them in sweat. They arrive at the water well, cup their sweat in their hands, dripping the warm liquid into the soil. They take their journeys to wipe their faces. They laugh. The first woman in the group has a salwar kameez, lukewarm yellow, a journey the color of lime. She kneels on the land and tells of the wild fish that swam in the once clean river Ravi that now stares at them piteously. The second woman stands, her suit the color of mahogany, a journey the color of coriander. She doesn't say anything but her hands stroke the smooth bark over and over again. She bends to kiss the last standing kicker tree. In the corner, the two youngest women sit on the last remaining patch of emerald grass. They hug their knees to their chests and laugh softly, a temporary rest, a private quiet. They're adorned in purple and white chinis, orange and sky blue suits. The fifth woman is somber and gentle. Water flows from the rusty tap, pouring into the jug. Her arm rests on her leg and she speaks of their great grandmother, who lost the Gungad flower work she once embroidered and the jewelry she also made, heirlooms destroyed in the blazes of the Great Divide. The sixth and seventh women stand nearby, the quietest and eldest of them all. They open their mouths, but no words come out. Instead, two beautiful voices chime in unison, a folk song by Nur Jahan that pierces the field in the sky. Nur Jahan, the Nightingale Pakistan claimed, but once loved by their grandmother on the other side of the border. Her records lost, destroyed in the blazes of the Great Divide. Now seven women sing, 
Chandani Rate, Chandani Rate, these moonlight nights don't let me sleep. The stories of her love don't let me sleep. And the sixth and seventh women soon start crying. They cry for the corpses of their loved ones and the polluted rivers. They cried for their disappearing Zameen that once loved them. They cried for the long unfurling cloth once embroidered with symbols disappearing. The peacocks, the Punjabi birds, the monsoon, the black smoke of the trains that took away their grandmothers, leaving behind nothing but another Batu. And the woman slowly backs away from them, her camera emerging. Let me take your photo, she says. And seven women nod while the sun shines down on them, casting shadows like seven scorching bindis. Um, I'll stop there. Thank you so much, everybody. That was incredible. Thank you. Thank you, Jagdeep. Um, because the light turns off and I have to like walk. <laughs> you have to walk around. <laughs> um, okay, next we will um, welcome Hasabi Kidano. Um, she is a visual artist working in printmaking and film animation. She received her MFA at the Yale School of Art in 2017. Her films have been screened at the Rotterdam International Film Festival, um, the Elizabeth Foundation for the Arts, Jan van Eyck Academy, and Film Madrid. Hasabi has, is the recipient of the Jerome Hill Artist Grant uh, from 2019 to 2021, and she's been a member of the Blackburn Printmaking Studio in New York since 2014. She was most recently um, a filmmaking instructor at the Yale School of Art Summer Program at Addis Ababa University in Ethiopia. Uh, Hasabi is one fourth of Digital Ancestors, an independent publishing cooperative based in Brooklyn, New York. Um, so we'd like to welcome you, Hasabi. Hey, thank you so much. Uh, it's such a pleasure to be here. Um, for the sake of time, I would like to start by reading a text that I wrote for this exhibition. Um, and it was really beautiful to be given a chance uh, to write for a body of work, to write something for a body of work that I've seen in stages because me and Jag actually share so much of our work uh, um, before it's completed, uh, before it reaches the completion stage. And so I wanted to read this text and then I'll move on to sharing an excerpt of an animation that I'm currently working on that I do think shares some of the, some of the same themes uh, that Jag is also working with. Um, so I'll start with my letter. Um, Dear Jag, sometimes I feel far from the generations of hands, picking, spinning, dyeing, embroidering, I would like to lay my hands on theirs and trace the collaboration of countless minds, eyes, fingers that measure, push, tug, and knot. Each seedling, bird, cloud, field you make draws my hand toward it. But though I can't touch, I can see that embroidery is a good teacher. Small, slow gestures become worlds that are first premeditated. One can say they are worlds desired then made. This sort of making was developed next to seasons and rhythms unchanged for generations. Machines and their logics of efficiency and speed have worked against the environment and the relations that were of those other worlds. Your tapestries, like us, people who work anachronistically, endure despite an uncertain future. We look toward the past, 
not for nostalgia, but because we ask what it means to make now as was made before. We know it's not the same. We want the difference. Maybe it's a way of closing in the distance. By making the past a present material, we can take the true and sacred, discard the rest. These works are beautiful to me because they express the ongoing desire for a world made gently over many months and years by caring hands, old and new. And I am with you in the struggle to keep my hands moving, making a world we deserve. Um, so that's the piece I wrote uh, for the exhibition. And for what I'm going to share, um, is maybe two or three minutes of uh, an animation I'm currently working on. Um, this was a work brought on by a new phase in my development and in my work uh, that started during the pandemic where I was discovering uh, the power of uh, what it means to be in your domestic dwelling um, for so long and really scaling down my operation and uh, sticking to very small scale hand drawings. Um, I started an animation project with uh, rotoscoping. Uh, rotoscoping is a very early cinema technique of drawing directly on film, frame by frame. Uh, you draw directly on clear film, uh, it's 35 millimeters wide. So you're essentially making a movie without a camera. Um, and it really felt very similar to the way you would handle a textile or you do embroidery because it was just, it's very uh, cumulative uh, actions that actually complete the work. Uh, so I was talking to Jag a lot during that time as well. Um, and it was an exercise of really using my hands every day, moving my hands every day because there was so much uncertainty and anxiety that I was feeling at the time that really was being uh, calmed by this exercise. Um, so what I, with the content of the work, uh, at the beginning at least, was me creating a study tool for the Amharic alphabet. Uh, Amharic is a language that's spoken in Ethiopia. Semitic language, very similar, um, in the same language branch as Arabic and Hebrew with its own script. Uh, and there's 33 characters and each character has seven forms of pronunciation based on the shape. So it's a very, already very animated uh, alphabet script. Um, and this writing is studied and memorized as a sing-along by children before they can go and um, put letters together to form words and sentences. Uh, so, I was looking at drawing as a cumulative exercise, the relationship between drawing and writing, the relationship between language and nature, which I, will make sense when I show this animation, um, the tactility of film itself and the uh, formal uh, considerations of composition, including color, line, transformation, transparency. Um, and uh, me and Jag have talked about preservation of languages and preservation of these skills that come from kind of a localized or um, very local spaces. Uh, 
And I think um, maybe this project for me wasn't necessarily about preservation of a language because it's it's so very much spoken in Ethiopia. But when it comes to the diaspora community in America, uh, that access is drastically um, th that access drastically changes because the context is just so different. So it was a way for me to provide a, maybe a different way of um, learning the language and continuing that access, um, even though you're removed or very distant from um, the space in which you'd normally speak it. Uh, so children was my audience, language is my subject. Um, okay. I'll, I'll stop that here. Beautiful, thank you so much. Um, so now uh, I'll introduce, uh, introduce Mother Anand, uh, who is a poet and an environmental scientist. Her debut book of prose, The Red Line Goes Straight to Your Heart, won the Governor General's Literary Award for Nonfiction. Uh, her debut collection of poems, A New Index for Predicting Catastrophes, was the finalist for the Trillium Book Award for Poetry named one of 10 all-time trailblazing poetry collections by the CBC and received a starred review in Publishers Weekly. Uh, her second collection of poems, Parasitic Oscillations, was published to international acclaim and named the top pick for spring poetry by the CBC. Um, she's a professor of ecology and sustainability at the University of Guelph, uh, where she was appointed the inaugural director of the Guelph Institute for Environmental Research. Um, and so welcome, Mother. Yeah, well, thank you, <laughs> Digdeep. I'm so thrilled to to do this and uh, to do this with you. And um, wow, those were both incredible presentations. I love the poems, Digdeep. And um, yeah, um, the, 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 that, um, the animation was incredibly, um, incredibly, I don't even, I, I'm speechless. I'm speechless, really. Um, so many things I want to say about it, actually. Um, uh, as I'll be. So, but um, let's see. I'll just quickly say that indeed I, um, I came upon Jagdeep's work. Um, I mean, not randomly because the art gallery of Guelph, Guelph um, you know, was, show, was showing an exhibition of his work and I do remember, you know, I'm in a very different part of the university. Most of the time I'm in a school of environmental science, but I remember sort of, it was towards the end of my day, but I saw um, like come through my mail or something like that, or a poster on campus at the end of the day um, saying that there was gonna be this exhibition called Chase. I didn't know Jagdeep or his work at that time. And I just kind of, instead of going directly home, I thought, I'm just going to stop in at this exhibition and see um, what it's like. I mean, um, you know, my parents uh, are uh, were born and and grew up in areas of the Punjab, so you know, like there is sort of also this overlap this, of of interest in South Asian art and work. Um, so I went, and um, you know, it was an incredible gathering. Already back then, there was a gathering of of different people, uh, and. I think we briefly met at the end of that exhibition and um, exchanged a few words and, uh, and Jagdeep indicated an interest in um, learning more about environmental science and um, basically our relationship started from there. 
um, it's really a long story with many, many like profound um, moments, um, including like an, an incredible exchange where he came to my house here in Guelph and um, I casually mentioned, uh, he told me he was working on, um, you know, importing and on um, the study of um, Fulcaris. And he started to explain what they were. And I was like, oh, well, I, I, I know what you mean. I, I have my mother's in, in my closet. <laughs> and I went and got out my mother's Fulcari, which was inherited from her mother. And, you know, we just, he, he, he was just, you know, shocked to find that in my house. And we draped it over um, the sofa in my office here. And we spent a long time talking about it and he educated me on the history and um and and the art of the fukari and um and we just continued to talk about many things after that so um so i'm thrilled to see um you know punjabi birds in his in his embroideries um they just i don't know they just like my heart leaps when i see him embroider when I see those pieces, because I've seen some of them, I think in, well, anyway, I've seen them, you know, before and, um, and uh, yeah, my heart just leaps when I see his interpretation of them and his interest in them as an artist. And in fact, like so much so that some of these anecdotes that I've told you about, like actually literally found their way into this, this book of poetry, my latest book of poetry, there's a section um, at the end, um, in Parasitic Oscillations, I've written a very long poem that sort of spans um, about two years of time, and um, including time in the pandemic. And 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 there's some lines of you know some of exchanges that I had with Jagdeep um, in the poem. So it's really it's a really collaborative um, process. Um, so I'm going to, but I'm going to read you about three or so uh, excerpts from my books that I feel like they were written before I've, I saw uh, Jagdeep's work, but I feel that, you know, these things, like, yeah, there are nonlinear interactions in, in art and in community. So I think they still speak to, um, to these images and, and this work. So let's see, this first one is the great divide, um, beautiful Zameen. And I think what I will read um, in response to this piece is uh, the very, very first, almost the first part of um, my, my creative nonfiction book, the experimental memoir, where one half of the book, uh, I've written stories of my parents' lives in the first person, alternating in my mother and father's voices, um, which again, you know, they originate in the Punjab and then halfway through you have to flip over the book and there's another cover and there's stories in my own voice as their daughter and as, um, you know, just sort of second generation um, experiences as and, and, you know, becoming a poet and scientist. So I'll just read you a teeny small excerpt from, from this, which refers to a great divide, which is, of course, um, the partitioning of India, 1947, into different areas, and in particular from in the area that my parents were living and born, the partitioning of that um, region into, you know, Pakistan and, and India. 
these chapters called Everyone Has It. In 1947, a line is drawn across the state of Punjab. The man who draws it imagines an organic undulating curve like a river. What cannot be seen is how it changes course every year. If a river cuts the left bank, it deposits silt on the right and vice versa. Everything in nature at first seems straightforward but closer inspection reveals something sinuous and ultimately crooked. Punjab means five rivers. Adding a line like a river by hand on a map does not seem unreasonable. His little arrows indicating human displacement are impeccable. But at that point in history, scientists have discovered infrared radiation, galactic redshifts, and continental drift. In The Origin of Species, Darwin has already written, it is interesting to contemplate a tangled bank clothed with many plants of different, of many kinds, with birds singing on the bushes, with various insects flitting about, and with worms crawling through the damp earth, and to reflect that these elaborately constructed forms, so different from each other and dependent upon each other in so complex a manner, have all been produced by laws acting around us. But maps are still a very poor resolution. What cannot be seen are fenceless farmers' fields, entwined bodies of lovers, birds nesting. Superconductivity has been discovered, but there is still no known mechanism to trigger the amplification of electrical currents without the input of a human hand the flicking of a switch. Ah, yes. There are corpses in the rivers of Punjab. Well, that, that text could fit this, this image as well. Um, um, but I'll read now a little bit from, I'll read you a poem from um, um, my first collection of poetry. Um, again, since you know my family's ancestry has overlap in this in this area, gosh, there's so many parts of my um, memoir that could fit with this image, and so I um, and 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 even with you know Jagdeep's title, right, itself is a little it's a it's a poetic line. There are corpses in the rivers of Punjab, um, but I'm going to read something. Um, maybe slightly oblique, but still related. Um, I've never been back to my parents' um, you know, hometowns. They never have been back because they had to, they were refugees in the partition. They had to cross over to the other side. Um, they, they were both born on the what's now the Pakistan side of Punjab. And so, um, and my mother, when she speaks of her childhood home and land, she, she, she talks very much, the, the river plays a very uh, big part in her memories, in her childhood memories, the Dor River. Um, it's where she bathed, where she went with her friends, where she would, the teachers would take the whole class to the Dor River to bathe. Um, later on, I move over to the Indian side. Um, they, she speaks about the little river that was near her home in Deradun and how they would wash clothes in it and so on. So there's really a very um, strong uh, 
memory of, you know, the land and the river. But this poem is entitled um, Parle G. My maternal great-grandparents grew species of plums and apricots I've never seen. Corn, wheat, vegetables, buffaloes, and cows for milk, donkeys to carry goods hours to markets in Haripur to exchange for raw sugar and dal. Now orange lokots can be found in boxes on Spadina. Mother picks them singly. She snaps off the tough, leathery leaves that just add weight. Mother and I are drinking black tea, a taste acquired after independence. Camilla, Camellia sinensis doesn't owe flavor to genetics. I stare hard at the little girl's face on this yellow and red package of Indian glucose cookies, their brand name pronounced Parlegie, with a voice in my head, my convin convincing French accent, though G in Hindi is Hindi and translates loosely to respected. In botany, pubescent means hairy, but locot leaves lose this trait before maturity. So, yeah, I mean, I wish the Daruka that even speak about this, um, this, this piece and the kind of, you know, um, mashup of the Indian birds and the Fokari uh, piece, you know, border on the, on the bottom, which looks, has, shares a lot of, um, the, of the colors and forms of my, my own mother's uh, Fokari. I say it's my mother's, but it's now mine. I took it and, you know, I mean, she gave it to me, but it's, it's mine now. So I feel like this kind of responsibility to, um, to hold it and honor it. Moon garden Punjabi birds. Let's see, what shall we do with that? You know what? I'm going to read a poem um, about my mother. And birds. Um, so let's see. So this is the last uh, thing I'm going to read. There. So this is from my more, more, most recent collection of poetry that was published uh, earlier this year in March. And this poem is entitled, Rising Variants as an Early Warning. Today, mother transplanted herself to the back deck without the walker. It was the sun, her first time out since the fall. The verb falling, the fractures curing, her eyes closed when I joined her. Days are becoming long, she said. And then, in Punjabi, two birds, one calling, one giving the answer. I know and she knows she has never heard these birds before. It took me some 40 years to learn such songs myself. But today's back and forth feels like something new. The two-toned cardinals could be doing social work, averting warming, or slowing down time. Like that Chinese lake I read was flickering, alternating between its two states dead or healthy, 
taking 20 years to settle on one. The birds are gone, but I'm still listening. One grandchild oscillates on the rusted swing set with past summer's wasp nests thrice removed. Creak, creak. The visual is a sine wave that becomes nearsighted near the end. I still use that trick I discovered in childhood. If I want to be cured of hiccups, I pretend to badly want the next one. I wish some things would just die a little more in spring. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was wonderful. Um, so we have a bit of an audience now. I um, At this point in the program, I'm happy to, um, you know, facilitate any questions for people who are here. You can um, type them in the chat. Um, and uh, I have I have some questions too, maybe um, to begin. And I would love it also if you asked each other questions. I think that would be really nice. Um, there are obviously a lot of, um, you know, uh, overlapping themes in your work. Uh, so it's really nice to see that um, through your presentations. Um, my, I have a question about uh, for Hasabi around the letter um, and, and also your video as well. Um, I thought it was really beautiful to think about, um, you know, trace this idea of tracing the hands of your ancestors um, and how that connects to what it means to make now as was before i think that's the the way you you phrased it um as a way of closing the distance with the past or you know closing distance with your with your ancestors and there is a bit of that in the video work as well um you know how context can change something in this in this case language um and so i was wondering if you could speak about this and and how you see this in jagdeep's work as well that you brought it up in the letter um, in response to his exhibition. And actually, uh, Hasabi's letter is included in the exhibition as well as part of the exhibition text. So it is a, a really important piece. Uh, so I was hoping you could you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, sure. Um, I think, I guess there's a few kinds of distance that I think about. Um, I think in Jag's work and even my work, I think the main distance that I think about is um, the distance from the kind of generational knowledge that you get by way of hands and also by way of vicinity, right? And thinking about how sometimes being a subject that was raised in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, but is just so far away from uh, like that, the elder women in my family that I can possibly spend weeks and months learning all this kind of very localized, very specific and particular skill set from. Um, it's, it's not really uh, there. Um, I'm oftentimes working in my studio somewhere in my Brooklyn, New York apartment slash studio setup. Um, and so the context very dramatically shifts. Um, and so that is the kind of distance that I um, think about. But I also think about the distance in relation to making 
um, handcraft works, like let's say if handcraft works uh, signify this kind of local particularity or peculiarity, um, then when we are, um, and are usually to be passed, around, passed down the generations, right? From your, from, uh, there's so many objects that are passed down from my grandmother to my mother to me. Um, and, but when we're making artworks, I think that uh, objects of use turn into objects of contemplation. So there's actually like a physical distance of like handling things when they are wrapped into this uh, more kind of commercial art world, commodity world um, that introduce a different kind of value. Um, you, I feel distant from the tactility of them. Like all I want to do with Jag's work is just touch them. <laughs> I don't know if that's like an appropriate thing to <laughs> say. I'm a little conflicted, but I, I want to hold it. I want to flip it and I want to see it, you know? Um, so there's the other distance, but I, I don't want to digress into that because I know we're operating in a different context of uh, art making and value and labor and time. Um, in relation to the alphabet animation, it was very much mostly looking at people like my cousins who live in the US who are not having children. And of course their children are going to American schools. So that within one generation, the access to uh, this, the, the native language is just lost. Um, and so it was my way of trying to create, be creative and close in that distance and maybe provide at least the beginning kind of foundational tools a fun way, a playful way to learn this alphabet uh, so that maybe <laughs> um, they can kind of catch on. And, um, you know, it was just me putting out in the world uh, a, a different learning technique, really. Um, so that was also the distance I was trying to close. And I hope I'm clear on that, but I can explain more. Yeah, no, that's, that's really well said. Um, and I, I might bridge it into a question for mother, um, cause I, I know you also are on a time limit too. So I'd like to, you know, let you go when you need to. Um, but I am, I, I, I was interested in how in your book you write from, at one point you write from the perspectives of your parents, um, which I think is really, must've been really challenging, like, you know, not just in terms of content, but also emotionally and, imaginatively um and and anyway i was really curious about that as a as an artistic process um you know what does that feel like what is that what does that look like um i know that's a lot but i i think it would you know it, it reminds me also of uh hasabi's you know approach to this idea of does it is it a an attempt to close that distance or was it a different sort of exercise yeah, no, that, that's a great question. And I do apologize. I'm going to have to leave as soon as I finish answering my question because it's Diwali and my family and my kids are like waiting for me to finish so that we can have the sweets because <laughs> we have to do that part all together. And so I was like, I'm coming. So I, I'm going to talk really quickly and I'm going to, and then I'm going to leave. But, you know, thank you so much, everybody for, <laughs> uh, you know, this has just been so, so enriching. And I wish we had more time, but also happy Diwali. So um, 
Yeah. So the book, I mean, I did attempt at first. So what happened was it was really largely because of the the materials I had from which to to write my book. And so, you know, to get um, to get a lot of the materials, I um, was doing a lot of research and stuff, but primarily everything started from um, my parents own voices. I I I was sitting down, I wouldn't say interviewing, but I was sitting down for hours and hours over a long period of time, speaking with them, listening to them mostly. Um, they, they don't mind telling stories, they don't mind talking, um, and they've been doing it all, all, you know, all my life. I just, you know, had deliberately started to um, in fact, record them um, because um, at some point I realized that I was going to want to write this book. And so I had their oral recordings because they're oral stories. Um, and then the challenge was, of course, putting it into into print and, and, into, and into and through my and through my lived experience um, to, to sort of translate them, really, even though I'm not translating across a language, they were speaking English for the most part, though I did include a lot of original Punjabi and Hindi phrases. Um, in the book because they they use them so much and they're so indicative. So really it was um, that, you know, I kept, when I came, when I first attempted to write their side of the book and their stories, I was trying to do them in the third person in a kind of removed objective scientific sort of lens because I put, I bring in a lot of science into their, into those stories um, of the environment, of the land and everything. But um it just didn't feel right. Like, so that's one way I think writers uh, can have distance by putting things in the third person, but, and maybe as a first attempt that sort of helped me, but ultimately it just didn't sound authentic. And, and, and also um, it didn't feel, it didn't feel, um, it just didn't feel right because to me, when, when, you know, the feeling of writing in the third person was like, this happened, you know, he said this and this happened. It just felt like too factual. And um, I didn't trust, like, I didn't really trust, I didn't like historical almost like, and I didn't really want it to have that effect. So I tried in like, in, you know, to, to rewrite one in the first person, like in my mother's voice and all kinds of interesting things happened when, when I made that decision. Um, I almost could get closer to her um, because it is a kind of combined eye. It's her eye and it's my eye. And um, it was that combined voice that, um, but with the kind of immediacy and authenticity of the first person that I felt like was the best way to tell these stories. But now I'm three minutes over and um, okay. forgive me, but I'm going to leave. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mother. Bye. Um, bye. Bye. Um, but we can stay because <laughs> um, I, I do have a question for Jagdeep. Um, and uh, and then absolutely, you know, continue the conversation together. Um, you know, there is, I, I think one thing that was interesting about what Mother was saying and, and just thinking about you reading your poems, but also, you know, I was thinking about a lot about the Charka work, the, the video work that's in um, the exhibition right now. If it, it always feels to me like, um, you know, like you're either describing your own personal experience of these events or you're witnessing it 
Um, and I feel like, um, you know, I, 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 I'm always curious about your position in relation to these stories, because it's a very intimate story that you're always telling. And um, in the in the Charka work, um, for those who haven't seen it, and I'll let you speak more about it, um, it's it's two relatives um, having an argument. One has left the village and one has stayed. Um, and and you know you you describe it as a commentary on colonialism's damaging impact on everything, including you know these very intimate family relationships. Um, and I, I see this as very important in your work, right? Examining narratives sort of occurring on the on the ground level that are nonlinear, that are messy, that are you know layered and um and you and you know kind of placing that in a way that you complicate formal archives or the way that lived experiences have been historicized um by others so it's um so i'm i'm curious about that like you know your position in relation to these stories and um and maybe even if you could speak more about Chakra, because it's it is a you know uh, it was an experimental film to you. You said um, so. Just would love yeah. more insight on that. Totally. I read this quote earlier today by uh, Robin Coast Lewis, and she's saying how like she talks about poetry and how it's not really about the language at all, but it's about the marks and the traces, and that really kind of stayed with me. And I think that's something I've been thinking a lot about with this body of work and some of the writing that I've been doing is, or I've been reading, I'm sorry, is um, this like beautiful kind of jewel of a book that I found um, in an old bookstore in Pakistan. Um, and it's a collection of um, folk tales and short stories from um, Kashmir and it's from 1893. Um, and it's just like full of like these really intense um, folk stories that kind of look at, um, intimate relationships and the ways in which uh um you know how how relationships can become kind of damaged or eroded over time and i think that's something i've been thinking a lot about with the specific body of work and um this book has also been on my mind the overstory by richard powers which is um kind of like an environmental um uh fiction novel that looks at um like a group of people in their relationship to trees um, so those some are some of the texts that kind of inspired Charka. And then um I think I think that idea of like traces or like the residues of uh what's underneath when like the veil of language is lifted and what's left underneath. That's kind of what I was trying to um uh uh find with with making that animation and also I think with putting together this program too, because I feel like there's no really fixed way at looking at history or looking at scientific research or looking at um, materiality. I think there's a really kind of material lens in which um, artists and writers and scientists and filmmakers can approach their work. And I think the city, the city of like traces and um, mark making, um, not only did that kind of inform the way I wanted Charka to kind of operate, but also it kind of informed my, my kind of curiosity at putting together this program, because I feel like um, you know, I think Haas's work and Mother's work for me go so much more than beyond um, language or beyond um, history or beyond um, environmental science. It's kind of what's the kind of the histories and the stories and the gaps that it's like kind of like left underneath that emerged underneath. So I think for me at the core, um, I think if I were to think about um, this public program and also this exhibition and that animated film Charka, 
um, I think the word uh, trace, tracing and marks and like the residues of that, those are the things that kind of come to mind. Um, and um, it's something that continues to linger with me. Um, and I think it's kind of a, an exploratory way to kind of approach um, this too. And I think uh, uh, kind of what Haas alluded to earlier, you know, where you said um, the relationship between drawing and writing, uh, generational knowledge being lost, uh, what are the effects of that um, and how to kind of approach that and how it, all those things are very bodily, like we carry them on our bodies um, and we use our hands to to think, to kind of operate and think about that. So, um, so yeah, so I think this idea of like residues, marks and traces as kind of the forms um, left, left the, the residues of that and how, and how they linger and how they go beyond the language of text or writing or or kind of creating an object that makes sense yeah absolutely thank you hasabi Jag jagdeep do you want to ask each other any questions is there like you know i i could continue but you know i don't want to kind of take over the question uh portion of this <laughs> um i think my it's not so much a question, but it's more of just like a token of like gratitude. I'm really just, I feel like just from Haas's like beautiful letter and her animated film, like there's so much that um, I'm kind of dwelling on. And she, Haas mentioned the term domestic dwelling and that's like really beautiful. <laughs> so I think if anything, I'm, I'm really excited to see the ways in which um, like Haas's practice kind of, yeah, like how you kind of like, Kind of surrender to your curiosities i think and kind of let let your work and your film and your art like lead the way and see where it takes you um and i think this idea of like being in conversation with one another and i think there's a way in which um kind of the physical distance can be kind of like the, like we're living in i feel sometimes we're living in these kind of such times of intense isolation even before the pandemic and i feel like the conversations that um that artists can have with one another that you know artists can have with other artists or writers or scientists or filmmakers like it helps kind of um alleviate the gap a little bit um and that's something that Haas has always taught me in uh in her work so um I think not so much a question but I'm excited Haas for you to <laughs> keep uh <laughs> yeah following your curiosity as a filmmaker and artist and and just yeah all the work you're doing and the research and oral history and the writing it's it's just like really inspiring. So I'm, um, yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> it was very special. Thank you yeah. so much. Um, yeah. Someone has asked a question if you want to answer for you, uh, Jagdeep. Um, it, it's about the language on your pieces. Um, I think probably the great divide. Um, Randy was asking uh, if it's in Sanskrit. Um, so you yeah. can and speak to that yeah it's actually um Punjabi um and the one I think the I think it's in a couple of the tapestries but the main one that it's written in is the ones of the birds and it was just kind of thinking a lot about um um writing the different types of bird names not just in English but in in Punjabi um so the thickle trash the golden orioli um the different types of peacocks um and luckily um you know feeling a kinship with Haas's film and even with mother's writing, like, you know, I feel I feel like I was lucky enough to learn how to like write and read um, certain languages from South Asia while at the same time losing kind of losing access to other languages. So I think 
Um, one of the ways to resurrect language is, is again, thinking, thinking about resurrecting it through your hands. And so I think uh, making a conscious effort to embroider their names in Punjabi was something that um, that was uh, just kind of intentional as a way for um, myself and the viewer to um, be enveloped um, in a type of history that um, kind of is really multiple in the ways in which it kind of coexists across um, different types of um, cultural contexts. So, yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. Um, they say, love the birds. Thank you for your answer. And actually, that was, I, I, I was wondering if I could ask about the birds because birds have come up in all three of your work as well. Um, it was in your animation, Hasabi, and um, and uh, as well, obviously, Mother, even though um, she's had to leave, it was in her, she responded very strongly to your to your work with um, with the Punjabi birds. Um, you know, are there, is it something that you look to in terms of, like, for example, for example, in Greek, you, you do this with plants, you tell stories about, um, you know, uh, the human condition through looking at plants, you'll give an, an analogy or a metaphor through looking at a plant, is there, is there sort of a similar everyday resonance for, for birds for you? Um, or is it, you know, just a, a way of examining everyday things? I think it's both. Um, and that's really interesting in, um, that you mentioned plants as well, because in the last poem, the figure, um, the, the kind of the spirit in the fields poem is, uh, you know, there is a reference to xylem, which is um, a Greek for xylo, which, um, you know, which means wood and which is, a right. yeah, that was something that um, is really cool to, for you to just mention that because I, I've also been thinking a lot about um different types of plant structures and different types of trees and the Lusuda leaves and Lusuda had a type of leaf that certain birds indigenous to India would rest on and Lusuda was known for uh, people to like, uh, you know, pre-industrialization, they would pick the leaf and rub it on skin as a way to like uh, help heal wounds. So mm -hmm. I think birds play like a, a many different roles in my work, mostly uh, through kind of just like a um, a way of under, understanding um, histories of ornithology and the ways in which that they're collected and preserved in South Asia. There's this really beautiful book actually by Leonardo da Vinci. It's like his intense study on plants and gardens that I've been really thinking a lot about. So mm -hmm. I read that all the time in the studio um, and just kind of a, a curiosity to also kind of learn more about like, you know, sitting in on ecology classes and learning about different types of environmental science and ornithology, just as a way to kind of um, help myself kind of hold myself accountable and responsible to bridge, bridge the gap between kind of art and science and find a way to kind of surrender to the unknown and realize that there is so much to kind of, there's so much knowledge, scientific knowledge that is so beautifully connected with kind of uh, craft practices and art practices. And uh, one of the ways in which we can do that is kind of, for me, is always kind of approaching uh, uh, the role of making work through the lens of always being a student and like trying to constantly learn. And so, you know, I read this beautiful book from the 1930s, different types of birds in Kashmir, uh, birds in India, um, and mainly just trying to understand in those histories. And similar to what Mother was saying in her poem, like my own mother, you know, I, you know, I think we all have stories of like grandparents and aunts and uncles and mothers talking about plants and birds from a context that um, feels quite um, very kind of radical uh, because it kind of harkens back to a time where communities were maybe more collective. And so I think that's also something that I'm thinking a lot about is um, using the history of birds in plants and gardens as a way to help alleviate um, the isolation of like 
that we sometimes can find ourselves in and, and artists living in a time of like hyper 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 globalization and mm -hmm. i don't want to use the c word <laughs> rhymes in capitalism but i don't use that word. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah so um mm -hmm. and and what about you hasabi yeah for me birds uh actually play a very important part of my work um simply because um in studying early cinema, early filmmaking techniques, one of my first references to the moving image, or I guess one of the first moving images um, that we see are Edward Moy Bridges' Birds in Flight, uh, the kind of separated frame by frame photographing of birds in order to study movement. So they actually play a very large role in my understanding of movement and speed and motion. Um, there's two birds in my animation. One is a hummingbird uh, as I've said, in uh, being con uh, during the lockdowns, I was very much contained to the uh, house I was staying in in Los Angeles, and I would sit outside in the in the pat garden patio in the morning. Um, so it was really a chance for me to search for a body that was outside of mind. Like I feel like so much about animation is really understanding how other beings move and imitate that. And that's part of the kind of, I think it could really open up space for kind of empathizing with something that is not you. Um, so actually so many of the insects and the, the worms and ants, uh, ladybugs you see in the animation are actually just from the, the around me that I was observing. Um, um, out, right outside of my window. And so this, there is a hummingbird that would come from the back of the house. And every morning I would look at it and try to study it and um, draw it. And that's why it became part of my animation. Um, the other bird is actually, wasn't around where I was. It's, it's uh, called the uh, Turcano Ruspoli. Uh, it's named after an Italian explorer. And it's one of, uh, the indigenous birds in Ethiopia that is on its you know, way to extinction. Um, so I thought I would include that bird as one of the final uh, uh, creatures that would help move the one, move from one set of uh, letters to another, just to pay tribute to the bird itself. And um, I'm, next year I'm hoping to work on a full project surrounding the story of the bird it has a very interesting story that for the sake of time I will um, reserve myself from explaining um, with you after you make it <laughs> so that's the story of birds in, in the work okay. yeah that's lovely thank you um, there is one more question so I think that you know we'll take that and maybe end on the on this question here which is um, from Anna and she says, I, I like this idea of tracing and residue. I wonder how and if you see memory and nostalgia as something that never was fitting into this. Um, yeah, I think it kind of is makes me think a lot about um, history as like a material practice and something that's a one um, to quote Haas, like something that one can revisit over and over again. And every time you revisit it, it changes. So I think memory and nostalgia um, I think play a role in the sense that they can hold you accountable to not really romanticize um, um, a particular moment that you're trying to kind of understand, but really look at it through through nuance and through clarity. Um, and so for me, 
this idea of like approaching something through the lens of like a memory or um, is is to do it in a way in which um, um, I think the role, like the, I think this idea of the, the myth of the victim narrative is kind of uh, eroded out of it and it's left with um, something tangible and real that kind of thrives off of uh, nuance. Um, yeah. Thank you, um, Anna, for that question. Yeah, great question. Great questions in general. Um, I guess we can we can conclude there. Um, it was wonderful to speak with you all. It's like just so beautiful, um, and it, it's really nice to see you know your practices sort of presented in a way that allows you to sort of feel the dialogue between them or the dialogues rather. It's it's multiple. So I, I'm very thankful to you both for this. Yeah, thank you so much, everybody. And, you know, happy Diwali, light a candle. Yes. <laughs> Eat something yummy. Um, <laughs> and uh, enjoy the rest of your evening. Yeah. Bye. Good night, everyone. <laughs> Bye.